This is such a great time of year. I hope you are enjoying it thoroughly. Now, I don't say that because it's summer and people tend to enjoy summer more. I say that because we just finished celebrating the birth of our nation. The Declaration of Independence as the United States became a separate country and we celebrate God's gift of liberty to us. And I hope you give thanks for that and I hope you had a wonderful time celebrating. It is truly one of my favorite times of the year. I just have always liked the idea of the celebration of our country's independence on July 4th. So I hope you have too. And I want to continue to think about that idea of independence through the lens of Christian faith. Because that's what we talk about here. We talk about faith as absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And God was trustworthy to entrust to us the stewardship of this great gift of liberty. And I want to circle back and think about that out loud a little bit. Because a lot of times we both overlook the real foundation that we have in this country in terms of its religious foundation, moral foundation, that, that is the, the recognition of there are certain things that are right and certain things that are wrong. And our founders wanted to do that which was right. And we overlook that a little bit. We forget about that. The other side of the coin is, I think sometimes good-hearted people, people of faith, they want to over-spiritualize things. And I'll let you decide what the right course of action is when we talk about things today, because really what we're doing again today is what we do a lot. We think out loud together, and I just try to prod you to think a little more deeply about things, make a little bit more serious connections between things that go on in the world, and maybe deepen your commitments to things that you already think are valuable and important. So we're going to think out loud a little bit, and you can kind of come to your own conclusion about the country's foundation and and how much of a role Christian faith played into it. I'll tell you right up front, I think it was quite significant and should not be overlooked. But I don't really think we should over-spiritualize it either, the way some people seem to want to do from time to time in, in, in an effort to defend religious liberty. I don't think we need to do that to defend religious liberty. Well, for the context of of our thinking out loud, for the last few weeks, I've been thinking a lot about Daniel chapter 1. And if you've been listening, if you've been here with us, you remember my references to Daniel chapter 1, of how Daniel and his friends, we know them best as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That was the names the Babylonians gave them. But they determined to stand up for God. Now, they got in this shape because the nation of God's people had abandoned God, and God finally handed them over to a pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar. The king came in and destroyed the city, took the people into exile, including Daniel and his three friends. And they wouldn't have been the only ones likely, but they're the ones that are mentioned in Daniel chapter 1, specifically. So we focus on them. We, We know them as real people that way. Well, these were the brightest and best of the royal court in Jerusalem. They were the ones that served the king there in Jerusalem as his advisors, or sometimes we say in the context of the Bible as his wise men. Well, part of the spoils of war was when a conquering king came in, they would take the people they wanted to take 
to serve them, to be an added value to their kingdom, with them back to their country. And so Nebuchadnezzar gave instructions, and Daniel and his three friends were taken into exile to be trained in the language and the literature of the Babylonians. Now, to be sure, we know from the context that they already understood a lot of things. They had been well-trained because that was part of the qualifying process. And we're pretty sure that because they were serving God and because of the way they behaved, they had a good grounding in what we call the law of God from the Old Testament context, God's word. And so they were taken to Babylon where they were put through a course of study to learn all of this. And early on, Daniel and his friends determined that they were not going to eat the food that had been prescribed for them. They were given rations from the royal table. They were given the same as the king would eat. But they determined, for reasons that we're not quite sure about, that those rations would defile them. That's one of the other reasons we have a good idea they understood God's law, because they understood what it meant to be defiled. And that was part of the law of God. So they asked for permission to eat a different diet, vegetables, if you will. And God gave them favor with the Babylonian overseers, and they ate vegetables and and thrived. They did well. God helped them learn. God gave them insight. He especially blessed them so that they could serve well in the royal court. And we made the connection that their determination to not be defiled was honored by God because they stood firm. They knew what they believed, and they were not going to be coerced into changing that. And so we've been using their example as a as a jumping-off point, as a way to, to remind us that we too will find ourselves in situations from time to time where we will have to decide, will we compromise? Or will we stand firm for the convictions that we hold dear? The religious beliefs, the standards, you can fill in a lot of descriptors for that, and I'll let you think about that. But the key thing is, will we have the courage to stand when called upon to stand. And Daniel showed not only that he had the courage, but he also knew how to manage that. It's obvious that God gave them special abilities to navigate the political environment of the royal court. Daniel served in government all of his life there in Babylon. And so it was not a dishonorable thing that he did. It, what was really remarkable is that he was able, by the help of God, to navigate all of that and survive for all those years in the face of an incredibly coercive environment. Now, by that, I mean, for the least little misstep and at the whim of the king, you could be executed. Now, we live in a fairly coercive situation these days, not nearly what it was in Daniel's experience, but nonetheless coercive, where we're expected to believe certain things and say certain things and approve certain things and all the rest of that. And so our times are a little similar to what Daniel went through. But we don't have quite the pressure. Even so, we need to learn how to navigate and how to stand up when the time comes. And so we've used Daniel's example to help us think that through a little bit. And also to help us put a framework together that will navigate these times and help us how should I say, make sense out of things that really sometimes don't make sense. 
And remember, Daniel and his friends had to navigate all of this in Babylon, whether it made sense to them or not. And so I suggested that we use a grid or a framework that you, you might call it. I don't, I'm not sure that he intended to use it exactly the way I'm suggesting, but developed by Everett Piper, former president of Oklahoma Wesleyan University. And he called the university when he began leading that school. He, began, he called the university to, to four essential commitments. The primacy of Christ. Christ is number one. We focus on that, he said. The primacy of Christ. Second was the priority of Scripture. Now that's important in an academic situation because sometimes, and it's regrettable, but sometimes even in Christian institutions, the Scripture is not held supreme over all other information. And Dr. Piper said, no, the primacy of Christ and the priority of Scripture. Then he said the pursuit of truth. Well, that's usually been a pretty common agreement in a university setting that we pursue truth. It's less common today in this coercive environment, but he said some years ago at his university, he was calling them to the pursuit of truth and finally to the practice of wisdom. So you put all that together, you put all the primacy of Christ, the priority of Scripture, the pursuit of truth together, and if you don't practice wisdom, what has it benefited anyone, ourselves or anyone else? So he reminded us, I thought that was very insightful, that he added that fourth one, the practice of wisdom. And we can see that's what Daniel and his friends did. They practiced wisdom. They clearly put God first because they were not going to be defiled. They clearly understood from some source, probably the scriptures, as near as we can tell from the text of Daniel, they would have learned that long before they went to Babylon. So the priority of scripture was clearly in their mind, and they understood the truth based upon all of that, that they could not defile themselves. And so they put that into practice, and they were wise and careful about it. And to be sure, in the context of that, all of that, God gave them favor with the Babylonians. No reason to think that he wouldn't do that for you either. If we put Christ first, prioritize scripture, pursue truth, and practice wisdom. The really hard thing in our days seems to me, and this is a little off the subject, but maybe not too much. The really hard thing in our day is we have trouble wanting to practice wisdom. Well, yeah, we know God said this, but he'll understand. I think that takes us to a very dangerous spot. So we need to think about the practice of wisdom. Well, I want to continue to think about the, the events of, and particularly the, the Declaration of Independence, all those many years ago. We've celebrated that, and I want us to, to remember Daniel's experience from Daniel chapter 1, a great, great chapter. If you haven't read it, go back and read it again. And I want to take a look at the founding of our nation and the role that that God played in that, at least in terms of how people thought about God and respected God and depended upon God. So one of the questions people sometimes ask, and that I think we need to be really careful about is, was America founded as a Christian nation? And I've had people bring that up in conversations before, and, and I th suspect more, more and more people think about it, and I suspect a lot of people would immediately want to answer yes. Well, I want to caution us to think carefully about this. 
Because how you define what it means to be a Christian nation depend, is, is very important in terms of whether you dis- decide that it was founded as a Christian nation. You know, if we, if we assert that the founders and all of the government that was instituted was there to put us under God and to serve God and for God to call the shots, well, then you have to ask yourself, how does that work with the, with the framework that we have? I don't think we were set up in the sense that when God's people came out of Egypt and they met God at Mount Sinai, that they were now a nation following God. We, we don't ever seem to see any evidence of that in our founding documents. Now, that upsets some people. Don't be, don't be upset. Just think about this carefully. At the same time, we are reminded and we should remind ourselves that almost everyone in those days, in 1775, 1776 and following, almost everyone thought of themselves as a Christian. They were almost everyone aligned with one church group or another, what we would call a denomination, and they, they did not really conceive of not being a part of that, of, of their not being a God, and that they didn't have a responsibility to God. They, they saw that clearly. So with that in mind, then we need to realize that they did have a decidedly Christian, and we would say biblical understanding of God and dependence on God. They didn't ignore God. They understood that God was central, and their understanding of God and the Bible informed their decisions in terms of the country. So, without any hesitation, without any doubt, we can say that certainly Christian principles informed their decisions all the way through the process of agreeing to the Declaration of Independence and then later forming the Constitution and agreeing to that, including the addition of the Bill of Rights. So, like I said, it's how you define this. I don't know that it was defined in the early days of the country to leave anybody who was not a Christian out of the country. I don't understand that. But it certainly is clear that the founders and the people of that day embraced Christian principles and brought them to bear on their understanding of the reasons for declaring independence and the basis for declaring independence. So that clearly Christian principles were in view. I don't think there's any doubt about that. I kind of like what John Quincy Adams said, and he put it this way, the highest glory of the American Revolution was this. It connected in one indissoluble bond the principles of civil government with the principles of Christianity. That was John Quincy Adams who said that. Now, I think that's really insightful. What he is saying is that the principles of civil government and the principles of Christianity were not at all at odds. They were linked. Christianity informed the principles of civil government, and they understood what civil government could do and couldn't do based on their understanding of Christian principles. I think that is really insightful and really important. That's the best way that I've come across to describe what it means for God to have been involved in the founding of the country. It was this bond between the principles of civil government and the principles of Christianity. I think that's says a, a whole world of, of interesting connections about how they thought 
and what they brought to brought about as a new as creating a new nation. Now, I also think that it's it's helpful to think about our charters of freedom, and we have three important charters of freedom in this country. We have the Declaration of Independence, that's which we celebrated this past week. We have the United States Constitution, which we've formed some years after the war for independence. And then closely related to that Constitution was the agreement to add to the Constitution from the beginning what we call the Bill of Rights, the Ten Amendments known as the Bill of Rights. Those three documents really define this nation in, in absolutely clear terms and beneficial terms and helpful terms and insightful terms and moral terms. If you want to get right down to it, it's the right and wrongness of the nation. Well, one of the ways to think about the Declaration of the Constitution is this, and I like this a lot too. The Declaration tells why we are independent why we were taking the steps to, toward independence. And the Constitution then says how our government will function as an independent nation. So we have the why and the how. It's very important to understand that, and it's clearly spelled out in the Declaration, if you go back and read it, it's clearly stated that, that the Declaration was written not only to say here's what we're going to do, we're going to become independent, but to say here's why. And it it recognizes right in the opening statement that respect for people who are looking on from the outside requires that we, as a nation, declare the causes for the separation. And so we see that at the beginning. We see a couple of introductory paragraphs that talk about what it's going to do. It talks about the, the rights that people have. And then pretty quickly, it gets into a long list of the grievances with the king, how the king had failed in his responsibilities. It's really, you could think of it as, as the, the indictment of the king that had led them to the decision to be independent. Because the king did all these things, now we're going to be independent. And then there's a summary statement at the end that, again, turns the focus back to God and what God had done. Now, let me identify four places in the Declaration of Independence where we see reference to God and where we understand important things from that. So there's this interesting phrase that we'll talk about, the laws of nature and of nature's God. That's one of the places that it refers to God. There's another place that it says all men are created equal. And by the way, I always want to be straightforward with you. They use the term men to mean men and women. No one should read that, and it's really disingenuous to read that and say, well, they left the women out. No, they were not leaving. They were, they were using that men in the generalizing sense that it was used in those days. All men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. So it talks about people being created, and it talks about the creator, referring to God. So those two the laws of nature and of nature's God, and then secondly, referring to the Creator and the rights that came from the Creator. We'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. Toward the end, then, it, it appeals to the supreme judge of the world. Now, some people might look at this and say, well, there's a lot of jargon in here. And, and that's one of the cases people might point to and say, well, supreme judge of the world, why didn't they just say God? Well, I don't know. We'd have to ask them. 
I don't read this and see jargon. I read this and see purposeful language. I read this and see, well, it was a different time. They expressed themselves differently. And so they would use words differently. And that's okay. That's important for us to understand. It was not done lightly. This was what they believed would communicate in their time most effectively. So referring to the supreme judge of the world should not get us distracted. And then they conclude the declaration with a reference to relying on the protection of the divine providence. Again, referring to God, but using words we don't use in the same way, but that they understood that God had a role in all of this. And they were not only respecting that role, but they were depending upon God to do the right thing for them. So let's go back and and take a look at these four things that refer to God, because that's what people of faith would be interested in. How does the Declaration of Independence, and then people follow that up by how does the Constitution refer to God? Well, by and large, the references to God are in the Declaration, because again, it's the why, and the Constitution is the how. So we wouldn't necessarily expect the same statements in the Constitution, because the reasons for being a separate nation had already been expounded, had been talked about in the Declaration. So let's read some of the Declaration just to remind us. I hope you will read it, and uh, especially these these first and last parts. If you don't read every statement in the indictment, well, maybe you could be forgiven for that, but maybe not. Maybe you don't see how bad it really was. But let's begin. When in the course of human events... It becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitled them. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. So they're clearly introducing the idea that they have the opportunity before God to be independent. So they're they're talking about dissolving the political bands that connect them and to assume the separate and equal station of a nation. And they appeal to the laws of nature and of nature's God as evidence that they are entitled to do this. And then they go on to say, we'll also give you some specific reasons Not only will we lay the groundwork in the fact that the laws of nature and of nature's God say it's okay, but we're going to give you the causes which push us in this direction. And so they did. So let's think about this idea of the laws of nature and of nature's God and see where that gets us. Well, first of all, when it says laws of nature, we use that phrase differently than they did. We, we think of nature in terms of birds and trees and lakes and mountains and all the related living things. When we use the word nature, that's what we tend to think of. Well, they thought of it a little differently than that. They didn't think of it in those terms. They thought of it in terms of God's general and universal law. They didn't look at it as nature, biology, or anything like that. They looked at it as well, this is just the way God has put things together. And, and so it's a reference to, to God and the general understanding of universal law. There's a man named William Blackstone that 
the founders depended upon heavily because he had written about this whole concept of law and rights and so forth. And so I want to quote from him, read from him on some of these things that he said related to that. And so he talks about the, the God, that God is the source of law in, in terms of the nature of laws in general. And here's what he said. Law, in its most general and comprehensive sense, signifies a rule of action and is applied indiscriminately to all kinds of action, whether animate or inanimate, rational or irrational. Thus we say the laws of motion, of gravitation, of optics or mechanics, as well as the laws of nature and of nations. And it is that rule of action which is prescribed by some superior and which the inferior is bound to obey. So again, he's saying that there are laws of gravity, and just as there are laws of gravity, there are other laws that are equally obvious. They refer to them as the laws of nature and of nations, and also of of nature's God. And so we want to understand in the context that they understood that, that this kind of law was obvious to people. It was just there and um, was written into creation. It was as though, how could it be otherwise? And they understood that this idea of nature's law could be understood through reason and through science. It was just the way it was. He continues, Thus, when the supreme being formed the universe and created matter out of nothing, he impressed certain principles upon that matter from which it can never depart and without which it would cease to be. When he put that matter into motion, he established certain laws of motion to which all movable bodies must conform. So again, he's saying that some of these things are the way they are because that's just the way they are. And they didn't shrink from that because they understood there was a God who was involved in these kinds of things. And he had put into place certain rules of right and wrong, certain rules of behavior that were right and certain rules of behavior that were wrong. They understood that these rules could not be changed and because they were just there because God put them there. And they applied to people as well as to nations in the same way that, that gravity applied to everyone. Now it goes on to talk a little bit more about this concept of creator. And this is very interesting. Again, he uses language in ways we don't. So it's a little bit, uh, how should I say, a little bit dense for us, I guess but nonetheless really insightful. So think about this. He continues, man considered as a creature. And again, he's using the the word man not to leave women out. And it's entirely disingenuous, as I've said before, for us to say, well, where were the women? Why didn't he include women? He is including women. That's the way they use language. Word usage changes over time, and we need to understand what he was saying in his time. Man considered as a creature must necessarily be subject to the laws of his creator, for he is entirely a dependent being. A being independent of any other has no rule to pursue, but such as he prescribes to himself. But a state of dependence will inevitably oblige the inferior to take the will of him on whom he depends as the rule of his conduct, not indeed in every particular, but in all those points wherein his dependence consists. And consequently, As man depends absolutely upon his maker for everything, it is necessary that he should at all points conform to his maker's will. This will of his maker is called the law of nature. So see, there you have it again. 
And he's very clear about this. He's saying, because we are creatures created by God, we are subject to God. God makes the rules. We just follow them. It's our obligation. It's just the way things work. And we need to understand that and respect that and live in accordance with that. Very interesting today. One of the problems that that we see people running into is that we want to deny that there is a God. That's part of the agenda of the whole movement to talk about evolution. We don't want to acknowledge that there is a God. But in these days, Blackstone being the one who helped them understand and who gave all these Englishmen, both in our country and in England, a common understanding of law, He was saying we have a creator, and the creator sets the laws, not us. We just follow them. We just are obligated to live as the creator establishes these things. And and he says that that's the law of nature, because God has just set it up that way. And it should be fairly obvious to everyone. They didn't think that was a big problem. They didn't understand any controversy related to that. They just accepted that and worked in the context of real of that realization that God had established things in a certain way and it was their job to understand those and to conform in the way God had established things. That's very different than today. Today people will say I want it my way and I'm going to figure out how to make it my way no matter what God says. That's a problem. That's a significant problem. We see it happening all the time. Well, that's a a mouthful of an introduction to this kind of thing. We're going to talk some more about the law of nature and nature's God. We haven't finished that yet, but I'm going to give you a little break for you to dust off your brain and think about it more carefully. We'll come back in just a moment. I hope you'll stay with us. We'll be right back. I'm Pastor Rick. World-class care from doctors you can trust, all from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company launched the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. Be a part of a revolutionary new healthcare system that puts your health and well-being above the interests of Big Pharma's bottom line. It's the way healthcare should be. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. Whether you're an independent, a Democrat, or a Republican, one thing remains true. Airborne viruses love us equally. You've all heard Malcolm and the great Dr. Peter McCullough talk about the advanced nasal solution Cofix RX. Cofix is made in the USA and recommended by thousands of doctors and pharmacists nationwide. Spray goodbye to colds and flus with a Cofix Rex nasal solution cleanse. That's cofixrx.com. Save 20% by using promo code OUTLOUD at cofixrx.com. These days, every time you turn on the news, it seems like there's a new threat to your health. Maintaining a strong immune system has never been more critical. Advanced nutrition company, Healthy Cell, created Immune Super Boost to help you strengthen your immunity. Unlike other supplements that don't work, Immune Super Boost is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed nutrients proven to support immunity, like vitamin C, D3, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea. These physician-formulated gels come in a small gel pack. Tear off the top and shoot it down, or mix it in water. 
boost your immunity. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. AmericaOutloud.com. If you can't find it here, you can't find it anywhere. We are the pulse and voice of everyday American thought, working hard to earn your trust for seven incredible years and counting. America Out Loud Talk Radio, liberty and justice for all. back. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and you're listening to Faith Is, where we understand that faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And it occurred to me while I was taking a break and dusting off my brain that I really didn't introduce myself very much at the beginning like I usually do. And just in case you're wondering, I really appreciate you staying with us this long if you've been wondering, I am a pastor, Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida. That's my church. We're a church like many other churches, and I hope you have found a church that is faithful to the Bible and helps you, where the pastor will tell you the truth about life and about living, whether you want to hear it or not. I hope you don't go to a church where you expect the pastor to tell you what you want to hear. I hope you go to a church expecting the pastor to be God's prophet and saying that which is true and right and leading you in the right direction. That's what I try to do. I don't think we have to be offensive to do that. Don't hear me saying that. But I do think we have to be plain, and that's what we try to do here as well, to think along together about what God is saying to us in our times. And I've been kind of going through this idea of the laws of nature and of nature's God in some detail, quoting from Blackstone and and helping us understand what was going on here. And really, it's important to understand because they didn't take this concept lightly. We understand this concept of the laws of nature and of nature's God. We understand a lot of what they were thinking and how they came to understand what it means to form a nation. Well, Blackstone talked some more about law. He was quite thorough in his discussions. And he said in another place, These are the eternal immutable laws of good and evil, to which the Creator himself in all his dispensations conforms, and which he has enabled human reason to discover, so far as they are necessary for the conduct of human actions. Such among others are these principles, that we should live honestly, should hurt nobody, and should render to everyone his due, to which three general precepts Justinian has reduced the whole law doctrine of law. So you see, what he's saying is here that the Creator has certain unchangeable laws that are eternal, the laws that are good and evil, and it's up to us to discover them, and he's helped us to do that. He goes on to say, This law of nature, being dictated by God himself, is, of course, superior in obligation to any other. It is binding over all the globe, in all countries, and at all times. No human laws are of any validity if contrary to this. And such of them as are valid derive all their force and all their authority immediately or immediately from this original. Now, in exacting terms, what he's saying is all law comes out of this idea of of God 
creating things and setting things up in a way that we can understand and we should abide by. He's saying that that law of God, that nature, law, law of nature and of nature's God, and there's two different concepts. We're talking mostly about the law of nature, is that that's what we can discover and that which needs to be applied and that which is binding on everyone. And we need to understand that and submit ourselves to what God says and what God expects. I think that makes sense. Now, Blackstone also talked about the realm of uh, human nature through reason. And he, he says, says this about God and man. So when God created man and endued him with free will to conduct himself in all parts of life, he laid down certain immutable laws of human nature, whereby that free will is in some degree regulated and restrained, and gave him also the faculty of reason to discover the purport of those laws. So what he's saying here in, in very important and distinct language is that God created people and gave them free will, helped them conduct themselves in every way that they should, and he laid down certain laws of nature that were to regulate and restrain their behavior. That was part of what the people of that day, particularly our founders, understood about God. Now, Blackstone, and by uh, association and understanding, because they depended so heavily upon both Blackstone and the Bible, of course, for their understanding, they understood that, that people weren't perfect about all of this, that there were there were reasons for us to be cautious about some things because of the fallen nature, because people would make mistakes. Well, he goes on to say something about that as well. These precepts, when revealed, are found upon comparison to be really a part of the original law of nature. But we are not from thence to conclude that the knowledge of these truths was attainable by reason in its present corrupted state since we find that until they were revealed, they were hid from the wisdom of ages. So here again, Blackstone is coming back to reality, saying, look, people are, are flawed. We don't always get it right. We are, by nature, prone to make a mistake. And so what he's suggesting here is that the law of nature, which we're supposed to understand and is written into creation through reason and science, is paralleled by the law of God. So when it says the law of nature and nature's God, Blackstone is saying that we need to be careful that we don't make a mistake in simply depending upon natural law. We need to re realize that God reveals his law to us more expl explicitly, and we should accept that. So what we would say is that there are certain obvious things, because the way God has set up the universe to operate, the laws of nature, and there are certain other things that God wanted to make sure we got right, and so he gave them to us in the Bible. And so when you talk about the law of nature and of nature's God, we get the idea that God set things up in a certain way, and we, as subject to the Creator, need to understand and adapt and follow that way. But we also need to understand that we might make a, make a mistake, and so that's why we have the law of God the law of nature and of nature's God, or the law of God. So what they're saying in their explanations of all of this is that what entitles the country to independence is derived from the law of nature, what we observe about how the world works and how we think through all that it means. And the further basis, the further moral basis 
for that independence is also grounded in the revealed law of God, the Bible. That's the concept in a lot of words, but summed up succinctly of this idea of the law of nature and nature's God. Well, there are some other references in, in the um, Declaration of Independence to God, and we should understand those as well. So let's go back and let's read from the Declaration of Independence so that we get those fresh in our minds. And I'm not going to read all of it. I just think I'll just read the, the parts that pertain to the, to the uh, reference to God. So in the second paragraph, we read this. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. And I guess we better stop there. We could go on. Very, very significant words that they're saying there. But let's talk about this idea that all men are created equal. And again, for the umpteenth time, we're talking all people. When they used the reference men, they weren't talking just to men. They were talking about all people. They used that in the generalized sense. And we don't want to make the mistake of saying, well, they left the women out. No, that's not, that's not it at all. So all men are created equal that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Now, what they started out in this paragraph saying is that this is self-evident. It needs no explanation. Before God, everyone knows it's true. This is linked to their concept of natural law or the laws of nature and of nature's God. It was self-evident. You should understand this without further explanation because everybody knows it's true. Now, it goes on to say that something about people created equal. And this gets a lot of attention these days, and people want to go off this direction and that direction and everywhere else. But truly, we need to come back to this idea of equality. What they were referring to is that everybody is equal in the sight of God, that everybody stands on level ground before God. All are equal before God. Yeah, some of us have different color hair. Some of us are taller. Some of us are shorter. All of these kinds of things. Some of us are better at one thing than another thing. That's not what they were talking about. They weren't saying that we all had to have the same amount of money or the same mental or physical capacities. There are people that are blessed with enormous physical strength and talent. They can do things physically that the rest of us can't. I get that. They weren't talking about all of that. They weren't talking about that kind of equality. They were talking about equality before God. And they were saying that everyone knows it's true, that everybody is equal in the sight of God. And that also leads, because everybody is equal in the sight of God, to the concept that we all have certain rights from God. They are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights. So all are equal before God with the same unalienable rights. If we hadn't been equal before God, we wouldn't all have the same rights that no one gives and no one can take away. What we understand is by virtue of creation, equal before God, that God has given rights to people, you, me, all people, everywhere, in all places, at all times. These are sometimes referred to as natural rights, but they come from God. It's very important. Underline this in your mind. Do not miss this. This is very important. Our founders and all the assumptions related to American government are that 
our rights, and we hear a lot about rights, don't we? Our rights come from God. This is a very important concept. Our rights do not, never have, never will come from government. Our rights come from God. That's very significant. Not only are they significant that they come from God, but because of the nature of that gift from God, these aren't rights that we can give away. It's inappropriate for us to give away our rights. So when the Declaration says that, that we are given these unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, he's saying this is a description of the rights that God gives, and nobody can give them up. And also make sure you notice that it says that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. He doesn't say these are the only ones. These are just descriptive, that rights come from God, and those are reflected in our understanding of God and his gifts to people, our understanding of the laws of nature and of nature's God. So that's very significant. Now, it's also important to notice that he says life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, the right to life seems obvious, but it sure has been important in these days when we've had so much conversation about abortion and denying the right to life to babies who have not yet been born. But here it says, among these rights are the right to life. God is the giver of life. We need to understand that. He talks about liberty. God is the giver of liberty. Liberty has always been God's idea. Go back to Exodus when Moses stood before Pharaoh and said, let my people go so they can worship me. Liberty was God's idea. He wanted to liberate those people from slavery. And I know we can parallel that to God's liberation from sin. We should and can and do. But he also liberated them in a very real, physical, and if you will, political sense by taking them away from that tyrant, that Pharaoh, that treated them as slaves, that enslaved their people, and took God took his people out to Sinai where they could be free. They had liberty. And then he talks about the pursuit of happiness. Now that's the most interesting of these three because it's, it's probably the one that, well, what does that mean? And I've heard people say, well, we don't really know. And I suppose in some sense that's true. But in another sense, it's more understandable than we, than we want to think it is. So when he talks about the right to the pursuit of happiness, there is a link that Blackstone makes to help us understand that there's a link between our happiness and God's law. So Blackstone would put it this way. God has not perplexed the law of nature with a multitude of abstracted rules and precepts, referring merely to the fitness or unfitness of things, as some have vainly surmised, but has graciously reduced the rule of obedience to this one paternal precept, that man should pursue his own true and substantial happiness. This is the foundation of what we call ethics or natural law. So when they're referring here to the, the idea that, that we have the right to, to the pursuit of happiness, what they're really saying is that we have the right to pursue a life that is fulfilled as we pursue it under God and as according to the way God would call us to live. That's the nature of true and substantial happiness. He's not saying it's licensed to do whatever you want to do. Not, not at all. He's not saying that. 
it's very important for us to get that because sometimes people think that that just leads to whatever we want to do. No, it's absolutely connected, interwoven with the eternal laws that God has given us, that happiness comes from following what God has said and trusting him. You don't attain it by just going and doing whatever you want to do. You attain it by faithful service before God. So that idea of of the pursuit of happiness is really significant if we begin to understand it correctly. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding. And and so much of the declaration was put together so carefully, and, and they went over the wording of it in multiple drafts. And when they finally came to this, They wouldn't have put a throwaway phrase in there the way some people think of the pursuit of happiness. There's no conceivable way we could expect that when everything else has been so carefully crafted and so well and thoroughly thought through. So I think that's just a a word to the wise that we understand. The idea of happiness is linked to doing what God says to do and avoiding what God says to don't. And that's a key to the understanding that we have a right to life, liberty, and to live a life before God according to his precepts, according to the laws, to use the language of the declaration, according to the laws of nature and of nature's God. Really, I think if you wrestle with this idea of the laws of nature and of nature's God, and you probably see this already, that that really, in many ways, sums up the way they use the concept of God here in the Declaration and the way they thought of things in those days. They didn't think that you had to have every certain thing spelled out in the Bible. They believed that because God was creator, there were certain things that we could sort out for ourselves, not from the sense of arrogance, because that's why God gave us the Bible. That's why the the God who gives us natural rights gave us a law so we wouldn't make mistakes. I think they understood that. Uh, We've drifted a long way from that these days, and we need to recapture that. And we as Christians need to say, hold on just a minute, and we need to remind everybody that really what happened back then was the way they connected the great principles of civil government with the principles of Christianity and made a system that works. It works if we'll follow it, Uh, We can have a whole other discussion about, are we following it? And the answer to that is, no, not really, we're not following it. Well, let's continue. We said there were four places that are references to God in here, and these are at the beginning, and these are really significant. Uh, Before we leave this one, let me just touch on one more, and then we'll get to the other one so we don't leave anything out. But after this idea of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, there's this phrase, this statement, that to secure these rights, now it's referring to life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, among others, remember it's not limited to these, among others, that to secure these rights, these rights that God gives all people, to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. So there they're telling us the purpose of government is to secure your rights, not to give you rights, not to limit your rights, but to protect, to defend, to secure your rights. That's a very different concept than people think of today. So when people were objecting to the, to the um, abuse of our rights during the COVID controversy, shall we say, they were right because government overstepped its bounds. They were supposed to secure our rights, not tell us what rights we couldn't exercise. 
very significant, very important, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. And if the government doesn't secure our rights, it begins to say that we need to get a different government, which is where they started from. Let me go back and read the whole thing. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. And there's a very key point in American understanding of government. Well, let's skip ahead now to the end. We go, go past a long list of abuses that they were um, accusing the king of conducting. And they come toward the end of the statement where they're beginning to put all of it into perspective. And in the last paragraph, it's quite a long paragraph, but it begins this way. We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America in, con in general Congress assembled, appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions, do in the name and by authority of the good people of these colonies, solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states. And it goes on a little bit further than that, but... I want to make sure we refer, we understand a couple of things that are going on here. We'll go by quickly. They appeal to the supreme judge of the world, a reference to God. Now, some people say, is that jargon or do they really mean? No, they meant God. Let's understand that they use language differently than we do. We use different references for God in our days as well. But they were appealing to God to judge that they were right in their intentions. They were depending upon God to judge rightly about that. They were putting themselves, as it will, under God's judgment for this. And they were saying that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states. What they were saying was, before God, before the law of nature and of nature's God, we should be free. And they were making that clear while they appealed to the judge of the world to vindicate their intentions, to demonstrate to everybody that was interested, that they were actually doing right by what they were doing. And then we come to the end, in the final sentence, and for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. A very solemn ending to a robust document. We mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. And it seems to me the only reason that they could do that is because they had a, a very well thought out and very consistently conceived and agreed to understanding of the law of nature and of nature's gods. And so they appealed to God to support this declaration, to support this decision they had made to be free and independent states. And they said they had a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence. And what that says, and this, this might surprise a few people, but what they meant by that, what that says is that they understood that God had a role in what was going on in the world. And they were depending upon him to protect their initiative to be free. They were depending upon God's involvement to help them. Well, thanks for hanging in there with all of this. This has been quite a, quite an involved conversation, thinking out loud on these kind of things. But I think it's important for us to, to think deeply about them. I hope you'll go back and read the Declaration of Independence. 
I hope you'll absorb some of what it says about God and you'll begin to think deeply and carefully about how the founders viewed God and let that help us understand how we should view God. We should put Christ first. We should have the scriptures as a priority. We should pursue truth and we should practice wisdom. If we will do that, we will have the nation we all want. No matter whether we believe in God or not, we will have the nation we all want. So until next time, I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. You keep on keeping on, and we will talk again next week.